Luke chapter 15. Last Sunday, we looked at the parable of the rich fool. As we continue in our series of parables. And one can make the case that on the face of it, this was not a good choice for subject matter. It was not a practical parable. After all, how many in the audience were rich? How many in any given society are rich? Probably not many. On the other hand, if Jesus were to give a parable about someone who is broke, about someone who's trying to make ends meet, about someone trying to find work, that is something that many could better relate to. If you will allow me this, I do believe that Jesus knew what he was doing in giving this parable. A story about someone who is rich immediately grabs our attention. And the twist at the end of the story gives us a certain sense of satisfaction. Because we're not surprised in the parable when we're told that the rich get richer, that the rich have no worries except what are they going to do with all their money, and that the rich are set for life. But Jesus wasn't speaking to the rich, was he? So why tell this story? What is the point he is trying to make? Well, rather than focusing on the rich part of the man's designation, a part that we may never share, we should consider the fool part, which hits a lot closer to home. We read last week in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We saw last Sunday that this, in this parable, this man has some internal conversations, quite apart from his community. He doesn't talk to other people and ask their advice. And he doesn't talk to God. He doesn't pray to God about his situation. He wrestles with the issues of abundance and what to do with all of this that he has. Never thinks to thank God. He simply, what am I going to do with all of this? And then he reaches a solution. Simply put, this man lived as though God did not exist. He was a practical atheist. That is, in living his life, he acted as though God did not exist. Paul writes about this to Titus in Titus chapter 1. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. In other words, make a profession to say, I believe in God, but in fact, the way oftentimes people live is as though God does not exist. And it is at this point that the parable of the rich fool becomes quite uncomfortable, I think, for many of us. We may not be rich. We may not be struggling with the issue of abundance, trying to decide what to do about our future. But we may, in fact, live as though God does not exist. That is to say, there is a disconnect between what we say and what we do, between our belief and our practice. Believing the right thing is no guarantee that you will, in fact, do the right thing. So what's the problem? Why don't we do the things that we say that we believe? I don't want to oversimplify, but I do think we should consider the matter of desire. We need to ask ourselves, why are we here as human beings? What is our purpose in life? In the history of the church, different voices have put it differently, but it boils down to this. People were created to desire and to delight in God and to reflect his glory. We were created for friendship and communion with God. The Trinity is a communion of love into which we are invited. And the love that we share within the Trinity, we are to extend to our neighbors. And so we have the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors. When it comes to the matter of desire, the problem is not desire as such. We were created for desire. I think oftentimes 
Christians tend to overreact, throw the baby out with the bathwater, and say, since, since our desires can be disordered or corrupted, we need to get rid of all desire. Let me just read to you one passage from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It is not wrong to desire. We were created to desire and for desire. Where we get into trouble is when our desires become corrupted. In fact, we could view sin fundamentally as the matter of the corrupting of our desires. Our desires are disordered. Isaiah tells us as much in Isaiah 51. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The next verse. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. When our desires are disordered, this in fact may enslave us. Or at least turn us from the things that we should in fact desire. Paul wrote to Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. We were talking last week after the sermon and the reality is I think wealth or richness is almost like the canary in a coal mine. My grandfather was a coal miner in Pennsylvania and they would put canaries in cages and put them ahead because if there was any methane gas that could kill people, the canary would die first and the miners would know that they need to get out. And wealth seems to have that quality in our lives that I think it is, it's like, you know, danger, Will Robinson, you know, it allows, it alerts us to the fact that something is wrong. Wealth itself is not wrong. Desire is not wrong. But when those things become disordered, then we can, default, we can fall into all kinds of traps. You may remember from last week the context for the parable of the rich fool. Is that a man came to Jesus asking him to arrange things so that he could get what he wanted out of the inheritance. He was, if you wish, a captive to his disordered desire. He has one chance to speak to Jesus, and what does he talk about? his inheritance. What is the answer? What are we to do about our disordered desires? One might be tempted to say, get rid of all desires. That is the way of Buddhism. Have no desire whatsoever. Just sort of detach yourself from reality. But this cannot be the answer because this is not how God made us. God did not make us to be detached. God made us with desires. The answer is that we should reshape or rehabilitate our desires. This is why Jesus tells this parable. To remind you, those of you who weren't here, but those of you who were, when we began this series on parables, that the purpose of parables was to change the behavior and create disciples. Jesus wanted to change our behavior and to make us into his disciples. And and how do you do this? Do you give people a bunch of rules, regulations? No, you tell them about God. You tell them about God's kingdom and the reality that God seeks to establish on earth. We also saw in our last series on hospitality that when it comes to worship, God gathers us, 
God feeds us. God remembers us by making us the body of Christ. Worship expresses an awareness that everything we have is gift. So, in hearing the word read and preached, in singing and praying and confessing our sins, in giving and eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper, our desires should be in the process of being reshaped. I think it is a supernatural work because if you think about it, we are here for such a short time every Sunday and the rest of our week we are elsewhere in a world that seeks to inflame our desires or to disorder our desires. But when God gathers us to worship us by his spirit, I think he is seeking to reshape our desires. Sadly, I think oftentimes if we're not careful, public worship will reinforce our disordered desires rather than reshape them. And so we need to be careful when it comes to that. Augustine put it so well, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our desire is to be for God. One more thing before we move on to our text. We have seen that parables are theocentric. Um, We may miss this because we're listening to the story, so we think it's about us. We are the audience, we are the listeners. Think back to the parables we've studied thus far. and What has been their focus? The parable of the friend who came at midnight is that God is one who is there for his people. The parable of the unforgiving servant, God is seen as one who forgives a ridiculous amount in our lives. And last week, the parable of the rich fool, God is one who exists and who knows what is going on and who judges justly. Today, here in Luke 15, we come to perhaps one of the most familiar parable chapters in the Gospels. In it, we find three parables, though Luke records them, interestingly enough, as a single parable that Jesus told them this parable. And then we have three stories. There are about three lost things, one lost sheep, one lost coin, and one lost son. I think people certainly know the story of the prodigal son, and they may know about the 99 sheep that you leave to go find the one. But I don't know if people remember the context. The parables that we've been studying were given in response to either a question or a request. The Good Samaritan was given in response to a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The friend who came at midnight, the disciples had a request. Lord, teach us to pray. The unforgiving servant, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? The rich fool, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In our passage today, this is not quite the case. But there is context. And I think it is essential to see this context to understand what Jesus intends by the parables. Look, if you would, at the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is the context for these parables. At least three things I think are worth noting here. First of all, Jewish society could be seen as very exclusive. Certainly from the Mosaic law, there are certain things that are clean and certain things that are unclean. There are certain foods that they could eat and other foods that they were forbidden to eat. 
Jewish society was clear about who was on the inside and who was on the outside. In today's jargon, we would say they were very clear about who was the other, those who were outside. Their cultural habits made it fairly easy to determine who was on the inside and who was on the outside, who was Jewish and who was Gentile, but not all the time. Because, in fact, you had Jews who had left Palestine, they they were part of the diaspora, and they had assimilated into the cultures in which they lived. And then you had Jews who did live in Palestine, but who had sold out to the Romans, either working with them as tax collectors, working for them, or working with them as the Sadducees did in the temple area. So the people who are muttering here against Jesus, they had a very clear vision about who was inside and who was outside. And apparently Jesus was hanging with people who were on the outside. And this seemed highly inappropriate to these people. The second thing that we should consider is how should we treat outsiders? If, in fact, there are boundaries, if there are things that we are to do and things that we are not to do, and we find people that transgress these boundaries, how am I supposed to deal with such a person? What are to be my attitudes and my actions towards such a person? The third thing I think we should consider is how different Jesus was from the Pharisees. Here in this passage, we find a distinct difference between how the religious leaders of Jesus' day felt and how Jesus acted toward those in need. If you want to turn to Luke 7, I'm going to read from this passage and then I'll come back to it later. So if you want to stick your finger there. Um, It's a fascinating story in Luke 7. It begins in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We see this time and time again in Luke's gospel, how that Jesus associates with people who are on the outside and people are quite unhappy about this. In Luke 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And there it isn't just the religious leaders, it's it's everyone. Uh, All the people saw this, that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house, and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. In Luke 14, we have the parable of the great banquet, in which a man has prepared a great banquet and has invited certain people, but they all make excuses. And so, he has this banquet and no one to serve it to. He instructs his servants Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. We see that the Pharisees and other Jews in general refuse to deal with people who are on the outside of those boundaries. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He was a sinner. And this woman who was crying and weeping and wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, she was a sinner. Why would Jesus let her touch him? And yet we see Jesus welcoming them and eating with them. 
This is the context for these parables. The first is the parable of one lost sheep. It's found in verses 3 through 7, back in Luke 15. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. One of the great ironies of Jesus' time is that in Jewish literature, shepherds were admired. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. But in day-to-day life, they were not very highly thought of. Shepherds were a class of people, along with tax collectors, and by the way, and women, who were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. They were considered incapable of telling the truth. Part of this was the fact that they lived out in the open country, and while they were in the open country, they could not keep the requirements of the law. And so they were seen as being constantly or perpetually unclean. And therefore, they were thought not thought very highly of. But the story starts out, suppose you are a shepherd, and suppose as a shepherd, one of you has a hundred sheep. At that time, having a hundred sheep would be, uh, would make someone rather wealthy. And it may be, we're not told this, that in fact he's not watching his own sheep, but he's watching the sheep of his community, of the village. That everyone has sort of put their sheep together into one flock, and this person is out there watching them. But he loses one of them. We're not told how he loses this one sheep. Perhaps it wandered off and got lost. Or perhaps as the flock was grazing and moving on, it simply decided to lay down, and it could not find its way back. In any case, the sheep is lost. So what does the man do? What would you do? Jesus asked. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Interestingly to me, actually fascinating to me, it is at this point that some commentators say, no, no sane shepherd would leave 99 sheep in the open country to go look for one. I mean, and you do the math of it, that's 1% of your flock. I mean, better to lose 1% than, I mean, put the 99% at risk. Some commentators see this parable as absurd, that the shepherd here is seen as irresponsible. What an irresponsible shepherd to leave these sheep alone. But I think these interpretations fail to take into account the nature of a parable. Parable is short and it is focused. The focus of this parable is the one lost sheep. In a real sense, nothing else matters in the parable. What we see is a shepherd who is concerned for one lost sheep. We don't have to sort of make up things. Well, I mean, one man with a hundred sheep, he probably had fellow shepherds helping him. So he left the 99 with them. We don't have to. Jesus isn't telling us this. What he is telling us is that the shepherd was concerned for the one lost sheep. He searches for it, he finds it, he brings it home. Again, commentators say, well, why does he go home? Why doesn't he go back to the 99? Okay. You're missing the point of the story. He has found the sheep, 
and he goes back to his community that he might rejoice and they might rejoice with him. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Okay, what is Jesus trying to say? What is the point of this parable? Without question, we have to look to the Old Testament and the Old Testament background. In Ezekiel chapter 34 and other places as well, we find that the religious leaders who are called the shepherds of God's people have failed to do their work. So let me just read to you part of Isaiah 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. In other words, there were lost sheep and you didn't go out looking for them. So they were scattered because they had no shepherd. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And Jesus, as he transgresses those boundaries, is in fact doing what the religious leaders were supposed to do. He is out there seeking them, looking for those that are lost and bringing them back. If this is all we take from this parable, I think we have learned a lot. But I think there is more. The first is that, and the next thing is that every person is valuable. As in the story, the one sheep is worth the shepherd's efforts to find him or her. Where the religious people were willing to write people off as sinners and refuse to associate with them, Jesus sees them as made in the image of the Creator. They are worth his efforts to go out and look for them and to find them. The contrast between Jesus and the rabbis could not be more striking. In rabbinic writings we find this. Let a man never associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. You want to teach someone the law of God? If he's wicked, don't, don't, don't associate with such a person. Do not associate with a wicked person, even if it is, in the words of this parable, because you are seeking to save him, the one that was lost. Then how will they come back? The reality is they won't. A wall has been put up. We're on the inside. You're on the outside. And Jesus is on the outside with the sinners, welcoming them and eating with them. There's something else in this parable that we should not miss, and that is the matter of repentance. If you look at verse number seven, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Um, Let's be clear about certain things. There is no person who does not need to repent. They may think they don't need to repent. okay, and that is because they are deluded. The one who does repent knows that he or she needs to repent. And they, in fact, repent. I think this is something that confuses a lot of people, either 
well, I, I think oftentimes they were taking a, a advantage of the passage. When, we, when they read about Jesus associating with sinners, they imagine that he did so not minding their sin, not seeking to correct them, or not calling them to repentance. That he just would hang out with sinners and, you know, if they wanted to do whatever they were doing, that Jesus was fine with that, that Jesus didn't correct anyone, he didn't judge anyone, he just would hang out with them. Um, I don't think that this is the case at all. What Jesus did was he brought good news to these people. You see, they're on the outside of society. And as far as society is concerned, there is no hope for them. They cannot repent. And Jesus comes and he goes outside and he says to these people, you can repent. You can turn from your sins. God will bring you back. God will forgive your sins. To those who thought that they had no hope, they are ostracized for hum- from human society. Why would God accept them if their neighbors don't accept them? And Jesus comes and says, I have a word of hope. And that hope is that by the grace of God, you could turn from your sins and turn to God, and he will accept you. Because he saw them as having great value. It's like the one sheep. That's one percent. Come on, you can afford to take a loss. God sees each one as having value. If you go back to Luke 7, I want to finish reading what we see in the story there, beginning in verse 40. If you remember, when we left it, Simon was saying, this is, if he were really a prophet, he would know that this woman touching him is contaminated. She's a sinner. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The point of that story is the woman had in fact repented of her sins and she had been forgiven. And because she had been forgiven, you have this emotional display in which she weeps in gratitude for the forgiveness that she has received. Does this mean that every sinner that Jesus hung out with immediately on the spot stopped what they were doing? They gave up all their sins? Not at all. But what Jesus did was he brought to them the word of hope that you don't have to keep doing that. You can, in fact, be a part of the people of God. God sees you as valuable. We would say so valuable that God sent his son to seek and save those that were lost. The second parable is found in verses 8, 9, and 10. We will not look at the third parable of the prodigal son today, uh, simply these first two. The parable of the one lost coin. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, 
sweep the house and carefully search or search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, for commentators, there's at least one aspect of this parable that is stunning. It's about a woman. Uh, People find this very distressing. And in fact, in terms of the analogy, she represents God. He who seeks for the one that is lost. The story is straightforward. She had ten coins, ten drachma. They're worth ten days' labor. We're told little else about the woman, except that she loses one coin. So what does she do? It's very straightforward. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She she searches carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. I think on some level we have to admit that this parable doesn't necessarily grab us because a coin, I mean... What is a coin to us? I mean, a quarter, a dime, I mean, you know, even a dollar coin, two dollar coin, I mean, it's, it's not that much. But this one coin represented one day's labor. It is suggested by some that in those times, it, re- it represented two days labor for a woman, that a woman would be paid half of what a man was. But in any case, this coin is of value to her. And Jesus, I think, is trying to say what he did in the first parable that God cares for people and God searches for them. He seeks them out. It may not seem like it to them. It may not seem like it to us. But we see in this woman that she searches. She lights a lamp and searches her house. She is persistent and she rejoices when she finds a coin. If she does this with one coin, will not God do this? Will God not extend himself and rejoice at the finding of his lost people. And when he finds them, there is great rejoicing because he loves them, because they have value, because they bear his image. But again, we should not ignore the place of repentance in the parable. Now, it's found at the end, unlike the sheep who might have wandered off on its own, um, the coin does not repent for being lost. It's not its fault that it got lost. Remember that the nature of a parable is that not every point corresponds to something else. The point Jesus is trying to make here is that God rejoices, that God is filled with joy over the return of one of those made in his image. God's joy over the return of one who comes back to what God originally intended. God made us and we have gone our own ways. And by his grace, by revealing himself in creation through his son, through the church, he has been seeking them out and he rejoices over them. The parables are supposed to be theocentric. We might be tempted to think that it's all about us. We're the lost sheep. Were the lost coin. But think back at what we've seen. That God is the one to whom we can pray and he hears us. He's the one who is there for his people. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who knows 
where we are and what we are doing. And in these parables, he is the one who cares for each person. He seeks them out and he rejoices when he finds them. That's why Jesus had no problem transgressing the boundaries. Here are the boundaries, fine. The lost people are out there. I need to go out there and seek them. I think perhaps we have become so familiar with the story of the Gospels that we may have lost sight of that. That Jesus came and sought the lost. In part because I think, I say this carefully, in many ways we are more like the Pharisees perhaps than we would admit. That we have a certain sense of self-satisfaction. That we know the truth. We know what is right. Those people out there don't. And if we are not careful, we will put a boundary between us and them. Listen, if anyone could draw the boundaries, God could. And to say, I'm going to stay in heaven and you all are on your own because you have transgressed. You have gone against my laws. But in fact, Jesus comes to earth because we have value. We have value. I think one of the most, well, I don't want to get into a contest of what sin is the worst, but I think one of the terrible things we do as human beings and as Christians is the way that we speak about other people sometimes. Um, the language we use to describe them, particularly when we're angry with them. When we do that, in many ways, we are being practical atheists. <laughs> we are living as though God doesn't, does not exist. God made us in his image. And the person who has done the worst thing to you still bears God's image. And the person who cuts you off on the freeway is made in God's image. And the person at work who talks badly about you is made in God's image. All people are made in God's image. We are to love them. We are not to see them as those who are outside. They are outside. We are to go outside to them. And as Jesus did, go out and find the one lost sheep, the one lost coin. Let's pray together. Father, reminded of what Joseph Stalin said, that the death of one person is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Oftentimes, I think we don't see people as people. We see them as numbers or just part of the masses. And here we are reminded by Jesus the value of each person. And the joy and the rejoicing there is in your presence when you bring them back home. When they repent of their sins and turn to you. I thank you that in our lives you came and sought us. And you found us. And by your grace we have repented of our sins. 
May we not be like the Pharisees and imagine ourselves to be the insiders, to occasionally peer over the wall at the outsiders, but to see them as Jesus did, as those he would associate with, those he would welcome and eat with, and would share the good news that there is hope, there is salvation. Forgive us. Forgive me when I speak badly of people. Fail to see them as human. Fail to see them as someone you love, someone who bears your image. By your grace, may we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And may we love our neighbors as ourselves. On our own, we cannot do this. We pray that by your spirit and your grace, you would enable us day by day to do this. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. We pray for Joy as she travels, that you would give her safety. We pray for Rachel, who we've not seen several weeks, that you would be watching over her and her son. Guide each one of us in this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.